Thank you so much. It's a delight to be with you this morning. Had lots of fun over at the coffee shop yesterday, talking with several of you in person. I hope you'll give me grace on uh, learning your names. Uh, It will take me a while. You only have one name to remember, Um, but uh, I hopefully will have many, and uh, we would look forward to uh, getting along together really well. Um, I just want to say how blessed I was with the worship this morning. And uh, the way that uh, our worship team um, led us to the throne of grace and the sensitivity to the leading of the Lord uh, in that time was, uh, was really touching. And so uh, it's been a joy to be here already, and uh, I trust that the rest of our time together in this worship service as well as in our Q&A time and sharing in cookies and coffee um, will be equally uh, encouraging for all of us as God's people. Before I open up the Word of God this morning, I pray, I'd like us to pray together and uh, just continue to ask the Lord to uh, bless and encourage us. Thank you now, Lord, for the privilege we have of studying your Word. I pray, God, that you would protect us from anything that is not from you, but that which is from you, I pray that we would receive it, that it would take root in our hearts, that it would grow that it would produce fruit that lasts. Father, please give me your grace and strength. Open our eyes for what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> it was on the Christmas morning of 1864 that the American poet and literary scholar Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was listening to the chimes of the local church around his neighborhood that were chiming out the melodies of familiar Christmas carols. And as he reflected upon the years that his godly father took him to church, he began to be inspired of writing a poem himself. And he wrote the words to a very familiar poem that has been set to music. You'll recognize it right away. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along, the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And as I imagine that experience that Longfellow had that morning, I imagine him putting his pen down and reflecting upon the day in which he lived, which was 1864. And we all know that that is at the height of the American Civil War, when hundreds of thousands of soldiers were dying on the battlefields. Families were being torn apart by this terrible conflict. And as he reflected upon that experience, I imagine he picked up his pen again and he wrote these words that many of us have never heard before. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. It was as if an earthquake rent the health, the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the household born of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. 
And then I imagine Longfellow putting his pen down again and thinking of his own personal experience. Because at that time, he had come through a very difficult personal crisis. A tragic accident in his home took the life of his beloved wife. And then about a year later, he received word from the Department of the Army that his son, Charles, a lieutenant in the Army of the Potomac, had been severely wounded with a bullet through his shoulder blade lodged in his spine, and he was permanently disabled. While he did not include his reflection of those experiences in the poem, he did write in his journal. And we have his journal that, we, that, he, that he recorded as he thought about these personal losses uh, many years prior. The first Christmas after the death of his beloved wife, he journaled how inexpressibly sad are the holidays. You can imagine that, can't you? A year later, he journaled, I could make no record of these days. Better leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps someday God will give me peace. Longfellow's journal entry for December of 1862 says, A Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. And then in 1863, his journal on Christmas Day is empty. Perhaps you or someone you know is going through a difficult season, and for you and for them, Christmas is a very difficult time of the year. There's a lot of pain in our world. There's a lot of difficulties in our world. And as Longfellow thought about the difficulties and the pain of his life, somehow, for some reason, he picked up his pen again and wrote the last chorus of this poem. The bells rang more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth goodwill toward men. I personally wish he hadn't written that chorus, that final stanza, because it presents what I would consider to be a false message of Christmas. Somehow in those words, Longfellow suggests that God is going to fix everything. That if we just get to the Christmas season and if we just think about Christmas like the Hallmark movies... Everything is going to turn out great. The snow is going to fall. We're going to hold hands with our loved ones. Our families are going to be reunited. And everything is going to be perfect. But it's not going to be perfect all the time. And you see, if we reflect to our world, our culture, that this is the message of Christmas, I would suggest to you that the world is not going to respond well. Because our world is looking for something authentic. Perhaps you've seen this picture that was posted in the Washington Post several years ago. Right after the major tragedies that have been going on in our culture of school shootings and shopping center shootings and and massacres. And the people who are uh, Christian people are giving condolences. We're going to pray for you. Our thoughts and prayers go with you. And at the bottom of that section it says, "We're, we're tired of your sentimental trivialities in the midst of a chorus of pain because God is not fixing this. 
You see, I think our culture is looking for something authentic. I think our culture is looking for something that works. They look around and they say, well, if the message of Christmas is peace on earth, I'm not seeing it. And I would suggest to you that's one of the reasons why some of our millennials and our young people are turning away from the church because they're hearing this this therapeutic, emotional sentimentalism that suggests that that's the gospel. But that doesn't mean that there is no peace in the world. Because the angels did come and the angels did appear to the shepherds in the field. Show the picture of the shepherds in the field. It's really happened. And the shepherds did come uh, angels did come to the shepherds. And the angels did come and say, there will be peace on earth. But the apex of that, that passage in Luke chapter 2 that was read this morning by our vanguard group says this. Peace on earth. But it's a different kind of peace. Show the passage of Luke chapter 2 verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. You see, this verse tells us that when Jesus came to earth, the wonderful gift from God came with him. Peace on earth. But it's not necessarily the peace that the people that were voicing their frustration on the daily news and that Longfellow was longing for. Oh, that day will come. The second coming of Christ. There will be peace on earth. Nations will be ruled by the Prince of Peace. He will bring stability for a millennium to this world. But the first coming of Christ, the incarnation of Jesus, presents a different type of peace. The angel declared that God brings peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, if you're thinking back to your days of reading the King James Version, or if you're thinking of the text of Longfellow's Christmas song, you'll notice that that's not what the song said. The song says, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And I don't want to go into all of the, the, the technicalities of Greek grammar and the study of ancient manuscripts, but recent discoveries and scholarship shows that what you're seeing today is the most faithful translation of the text that we have from the original. There is peace, but this peace comes to those upon whom God's favor rests. So what I'd like to do today is turn to the Isaiah prophecy, the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. And I want to talk about what it means to have God's favor rest upon us. And then I want to talk about the peace that comes because God's favor rests on us. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Isaiah chapter 53. I should have looked up the page number in your Bibles that you have in your chair. If you don't know where Isaiah is, open up your Bibles to the middle and you should get to Psalms. And then turn towards the New Testament a couple of pages. And you'll get to Isaiah. And then look for Isaiah chapter 53. And once you find it, Isaiah 53, I'm not going to project uh, the words because I want you to have the Bible on your lap throughout this message. So I'm going to read for you Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 4. And I want to talk about the peace that the prophet 
is talking about here. Isaiah says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us turned to our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now jump down to verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. This passage is central to the Old Testament prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. But you'll see from this passage that this is not one who is going to bring peace to the earth. That's his second coming. This is his first coming, his initial coming, the incarnation of Christ. And in this passage we see um, a a unique peace. And, And if you take something home from this message today, take this statement home. Followers of Jesus those on whom God's favor rests, experience a unique peace in this world. We experience a unique peace in this world. It's the grace of God given to us as a gift that brings us peace. Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. I don't give you the peace of the Hallmark movies. By the way, I don't have anything against Hallmark movies. Okay? My wife and I watch Hallmark movies. They're safe. <laughs> you know, it's fun to look at the decorations and it's fun to see everything work out well. Okay? So I don't have anything about that. But that's not the gospel. That's not the meaning of Christmas. That's not what happens at Christmas. That's not the peace that comes at Christmas. Because Jesus says, I did not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. The peace that the gospel gives us, the peace that the Lord Jesus was incarnate, was born to give us, is a unique peace. And it's the peace offered to those upon whom God's favor rests. And so from the verses of Isaiah that we read together this morning, I'd like to look at three dimensions of the peace that God gives that we can celebrate on Christmas. And the first is peace with God. Peace with God. Verse 5. Notice how Isaiah says that Jesus took the punishment that brought us peace. When Jesus died on the cross, he was our substitute. That means he took our sentence. That means he paid a penalty that we could not pay, a penalty that belonged to us. On the cross, he was pierced, he was crushed, he suffered and died. And we remember that this morning when we took communion. 
But there is even greater suffering than the physical agony of crucifixion. Verse 6 says that God put the weight of our sin on Jesus. The weight of our sin was placed on Christ. And when he grew and grew up as a man and he went to the cross and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the moment that God placed our sin upon a sinless Jesus. And it's the time when he paid the penalty that you and I deserve. And that's the moment when the Apostle Paul can write in the book of Romans, those who have been justified by faith, there is peace with God. See, that's the peace that the angels talk about. Now, skeptics might complain that, well, this is, this is not fair. I mean, God took his innocent son, Jesus, and made him pay for someone else's sins. That's just not fair. One atheist uh, said that's divine child abuse. But this criticism evaporates when we realize that because Jesus and the Father are one, when God laid the sins of the world on Jesus, he laid the sins of the world on himself. And when God punished Jesus, he punished himself. God in Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And it had to be that way. Because if there's a sin against an eternal God, there's only an eternal sacrifice that would be worthy enough to satisfy the need for forgiveness. And so who can satisfy an eternal God except the eternal God himself? And so when Jesus took upon us the sin of the world, he took upon himself the sin of the world, and God himself paid the penalty for our sin, a plan that was decided in eternity past. And as a result, his punishment brought us peace with God. Now, I want you to imagine with me a video of your life. And when you stand before God, when you leave this world and enter into glory, that video is loaded in, I say VCR, I'm too old to say that, the DVD. (laughs) And you know what the Bible says? If you've received the gift of forgiveness from God, that video is never going to be played. Because here's what Psalm 103 says. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquity. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. In Christ we are washed and made clean, declared not guilty. And there is no more that we have to think about. Verse 11 tells us that we are, not, we are, we are declared not guilty. And we are also declared righteous. Uh, the NIV that you have says that he will justify many. 
But if some of you have a more recent translation, like the ESV, it expands on this concept and it fills out the theological meat of that word. We are counted righteous. You know the Mercy Me song, Flawless? You know, the cross has made, the cross has made you flawless. That's, that's the crux of the cross. That's peace with God. We stand before him clothed in the righteousness of Christ and we are flawless because we've received God's favor and God's favor rests upon us. We now can have peace with God. See, that's, that's the message of Christmas. But not only do we have peace with God, we have the peace of God. And that's found in verse 5 of Isaiah. The peace of God. Notice verse 5. Isaiah says that by his stripes we are healed. Do we have the peace of God up on the... Yeah, there it is. Look at verse 5. It says, by his stripes we are healed. What are we healed of? One scholar writes this. I thought this is this is great. Sin is a malady debilitating the sinner like a malignant infection, increasing its grip on the vital functions of the soul like some pitiless disease, its appetite unsatisfied until it has destroyed every function and brought the sinner down to death. Wow. Sin is also a blight touching and diminishing every longed-for brightness of life, making every hope fall short of its fulfillment and making our happiness turn to ashes. Think of the burden that a person carries around who is aware of their brokenness, who is aware of their sinfulness, who is aware of the fact that there's this disease within them, eating them away like a cancer, and the turmoil within them that happens. And then think of receiving God's favor. Then think of receiving peace with God. And what happens when you have peace with God? The peace of God begins to wash over us. And we can declare with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, the peace of God which transcends All understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4. Here Paul tells us that a life of walking with God can be a life of peace. Whatever we might be facing in life, whatever the assignment that he has given us, Whatever difficulty we're facing and walking through in our life. Someone said, you're either in the midst of a trial, you're coming out of a trial, or you're about ready to enter into a trial. (laughs) Well, what do we do with that as a Christian? How come bad things happen to good people? Well, we have to know that God God is sovereign, that God is good, and that God is just. And as we think about what God is doing in our lives, we can have that peace of God in the midst of the turmoils of life. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world.
Whatever our lot, you have taught us to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You see, that's what we can have if we receive God's favor, if we receive the gift that God has given to us in the Son who was incarnate and born on that day, declared by the shepherds, peace I give to you upon those who receive God's favor. And then finally, not only is there the peace with God and the peace of God, but Isaiah tells us there's also peace among believers. A very important word is found in verse 10 that describes the type of sacrifice that Jesus made. Isaiah says that Jesus was a guilt offering or a trespass offering. Uh, Maybe your translation only says an offering or it says a sacrifice. But the type of offering and the type of sacrifice is the trespass offering or the guilt offering. And that is the sacrifice that deals with offenses that come from hurting others. It talks about the fact that Jesus died to forgive us of the offenses and the hurt that I caused you and that you caused me. Brothers and sisters, listen. There's no such thing as private sin. You think, well, I mean, that's just my issue. That doesn't involve anybody else. That's not true. Sins of mothers and fathers directly impacts your children. The sins of teenagers directly impacts your siblings, your brothers and sisters. And it impacts your parents. Sins of church members directly impacts the body, one another. Sins of church leaders and pastors directly affects um, the, the reputation of the gospel in the community. Terrible, terrible consequences. There's no such thing as private sin. But here's the good news. When Jesus died, he died for those sins as well. He died to take care of and to forgive and to wash us clean from the sins that we have sinned against one another. But there's one thing that is, that is present in this trespass or guilt sin a sacrifice that is given in the Old Testament. There's a requirement of restitution. There's a requirement to make it right. And so you know what the Bible tells us as Christians? If we have sinned against someone else, the Bible tells us that we need to confess. We need to go to that person. And we need to take personal responsibility for that sin. And we need to uh, walk in a life of repentance. And then the Bible also says that if we have been the one who's been offended, we are to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. That's another whole sermon, almost a series of sermons, isn't it? But you know what? That's what Jesus died to do, to present for us a sacrifice, a trespass offering that brings peace among believers. And here's how the Apostle Paul described it in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. 
Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort, here it is, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, do you see what it says here? It says that we are to preserve the unity of the Spirit. We are to preserve the forgiveness and the unity and the peace with one another that Jesus bought for us on the cross. Jesus bought for us peace with one another. Paul is talking about the unity that we have. Earlier in his letter, he reminds his readers that the unity has already been accomplished. Chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. And I think that was referred to in our worship team. But all the walls of division have been broken down, and he has brought us peace. He is our peace. Where did that peace come from? It came from the cross. It came from the death and resurrection of Jesus. One scholar writes this. I think it's a wonderful summary. He says, There can be no peace within until there is peace between us. That is what Christ came to make possible. Reconciliation among us. Christ came to give us the power to make peace among ourselves. We can speak the words of forgiveness. We can allow a person who has failed us once to walk on the path of second chances. Continuing, our lives will be so much richer and our burdens will be so much lighter when we set aside those things that stand between us and those who are closest to us. There can be no peace within until there is peace between us. And Paul tells us that to live lives that are worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus made. In Christ, God broke down those divisions. He created one new man, one remodeled household, as one church where his presence lives, and this peace is maintained by humility and gentleness, by patience, by practicing forgiveness and reconciliation. Most of the time, this is a conscious decision. We decide to live with one another in harmony. And life together in the church is not about us, is it? It's about Christ. It's about the body. It's about presenting a testimony to the world. It's about sharing to the world that, yes, there is peace on earth, but it's, it's a unique peace. It's the peace with God. It's peace of God. And it's peace one with another. And that's a unique peace that is available to those upon whom God's favor rests. So I close with a question. Do you know for certain that God's favor rests on you? Are you wondering if God's favor rests on you? Well, you know God's favor is is available to anybody who will trust Christ who will receive this wonderful gift of grace that he has given to us in Christ, who will respond and say yes to God and say, you sacrificed your son, you paid the penalty for my sin, and I want to receive that gift of forgiveness so that your favor will rest upon me. And as God's favor rests upon us, he will be a strong tower that will withstand the storms of life. 
the waves will crash against us in this life. But we will have stability in Christ. And in the midst of the storms, we will experience God's peace. That's the message of Christmas. That's the peace of God that is offered by Jesus. So we pray together. Father in heaven, this is the gospel. This is what you came to proclaim to the world. This baby Jesus came to bring peace. But it's a unique peace. It's a peace offered to those upon whom your favor rests. It's a peace that comes to those who place their faith and trust in Christ. And I pray today, Holy Spirit, if there's anyone that is grappling with their own relationship with you, that you would work and move upon them in such a way as to cause them to have faith in Christ. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're saying, you know, I've never really thought of it that way. But I want to give my life to creep to Jesus, and I want to receive his favor. Just pray with me. Lord Jesus, I know that that, that sin is my responsibility, and, and I know that Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sins. So I receive his forgiveness today. Place my faith and trust in him. Receive peace with him. I receive his peace. And I receive the ability to live in peace with other people. Thank you for giving me this wonderful gift. Thank you that your favor now rests upon me. And I thank you, Lord, that I can live the Christmas season, even in the midst of difficulties and struggles and and whatever storms enter into my life, that you are my rock, you are my strong tower. And I can know that I'm an overcomer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isn't that good news? Isn't that better than thinking that we've got a God's got to solve all of our problems? Good news of the gospel is something that transcends all experiences and it's something that all of us can enjoy as we place their faith and trust in Christ. If you'd like to talk about this more, uh, please come up and see me after service. And uh, if any of you have any questions about anything that I shared from Isaiah 53 today, uh, open field for question and answer time downstairs over a cookie. So let's.